And so what I'd like you to see this evening as is, is not the final word on any of these issues, but the beginning of thinking these things through. And hopefully I'll give you some material to, to mull over and to think about. Consequently, I don't expect us all to be in 100% agreement with everything that I say. And I really welcome uh, you coming back at me and questioning anything that I, that I do say that you think is wrong. Um, I am very interested in being corrected by the Scriptures. So where I am wrong, bring me the Bible and show me, and I will endeavour to change my mind. That's one qualification. I'm not an expert. Um, another qualification is, and I think it's important that we acknowledge this when we're talking about this sort of issue, I come from a particular perspective. I am male, heterosexual, married for most, almost all of my adult life. Well, basically I got married just after I finished university. So as university doesn't count as your adult life, sorry students, <laughs> all my adult life. And I want you to know that because inevitably our perspective limits what we can see. And you will see things probably that I do not see. And again, I would love you to come and share that with me. Because one of the things that we can do is help one another to have insight into God's good plan for our lives. And there's a, a third one, which is, um, we're going to need to do some theology this evening. So, some of it is going to be um, potentially complex. Bear with it. I hope I can make it understandable and I hope it will work for us in the end. So, that's where we're going. Why are we talking about this at all? Why are we talking about sexuality? Um, let me read you a quote from one of my favourite theologians. He says, the church confesses that it has not found any guiding or helpful word to say in the midst of the dissolution of all order in the relationship of the sexes to each other. It has found no strong or authentic message to set against the disdain for chastity and the proclamation of sexual licentiousness. Beyond the occasional expression of moral indignation, it has had nothing to say. The church has become guilty, therefore, of the loss of purity and wholesomeness among youth. It has not known how to proclaim strongly that our bodies are members of the body of Christ. Uh, that was written in uh, around about 1941 by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And what strikes me as I read that is, we've had some time to think about that since then. And I'm still not convinced that the church has anything much to say in this area. I just think we haven't thought it through. We haven't wrestled with it. And I can't pretend um, that I am the answer to Bonhoeffer's problem. Well, I could pretend, but you would see through me very quickly. But certainly, it will help us just to start the conversation. Because you will know that this is a big deal in our culture. Questions around sexuality are huge. And assumptions about sexuality and the way it works in our culture have moved a long way in the last 60, 70 years from a broad consensus to a new broad consensus, but one which excludes a lot of views which Christians have held to be biblical. 
The ground has shifted underneath our feet. And I'm afraid to say I'm not convinced the church noticed it happening until we were in free fall. So that is why we need to address it. We need to work out what to say. But there are more important reasons. And the more important reason is if we grapple with the the issue of sexuality, I am convinced we can also gain insight into the love of God shown to us in Jesus. And that, I hope, is what we're going to do this evening more than anything else. So this is not going to be the sort of session where we think about what sorts of questions our friends ask about sexuality and try to answer them. It's going to be a session where we think about the Lord Jesus and his love for us and how that shapes our view of sexuality. And from there, maybe we can come sideways at some of those big questions that we're being asked and hit them in a slightly different way. So I hope that makes sense. Um, Let me show you where we're going. It's um, ludicrously ambitious because uh, my plan is to cover essentially everything. So um, we'll start by talking about the nature of reality. Once we've settled that, um, we're going to move on to try to pick up a big picture, biblical vision for sexuality. We're going to look at gender and marriage and sex. and uh, I've still put singleness on here, but really I'm talking about celibacy. We'll come back to why that's important later. And then once we've got that big picture, then we will start to think about a couple of the big challenges that are floating around in our culture and in the church. Let's not pretend that those challenges are just outside of Christian circles. Uh, And then at the end I want to talk about Jesus some more. Is that alright with everybody? I'm not going to change it if it's not. So, let me talk about reality and the nature of reality. The Bible's view of reality is that reality is ultimately word-shaped. And by that, I don't just mean it is shaped around language, that is nonsense, although some people will hold that in philosophical circles today. What I mean is, it is shaped around the word of God around the one who reveals God and reveals his purposes for creation. So, we're going to start with Jesus. Let's never lose the fact that according to scripture, Jesus Christ is the only word of God which we must hear and obey. Jesus Christ is where we see God. And because he is where we see God in human flesh, He is also where we see what humanity is meant to be like. He is in himself the message of God to us about God himself and about the purpose of creation and especially of human beings. That is what it is all about. Let me read you uh, a part from Colossians 1. I'm actually going to read a few more verses than that. The Son... Oh yeah, you can look these up. There are going to be various references. I've put page references on the screen. You can look them up if you like. It might help you. Um, I'm not going to pause for you to look them up every time because, hey, time. Um, The sun is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, 
and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Now I want you to notice, Paul is very clearly in these verses talking about the man Jesus who died and rose again. He says that that happened to him. His blood was shed on the cross. He is the firstborn from the dead. But he also says of him, he is the one through whom and for whom all things exist. And he is the one in whom all things hold together. So it is in him, in Jesus, and particularly in his life, death and resurrection, that we see what reality is all about. If you were to um, draw a picture of it, we could say that that Jesus is, is underneath reality. Jesus is like the skeleton that runs through reality. And Jesus is the goal, the point of reality. He is what it is all about. The union of God and man in Jesus is the very foundation of reality and creation. Everything was created for him. Now, you're probably used to hearing that sort of thing, but just think what a claim it is. A particular man at a particular time in history, everything exists for him. And his story is the central story And therefore, when we are thinking about how the world works and how humanity works, and this evening especially about how sexuality works, what it is meant to be and do in God's creation, we should start from that central story of what God is doing in the world through his revelation in Jesus Christ. That's where we should start, because everything else revolves around him. Everything else revolves around him. And that means that when we are discussing sexuality and starting from him, we should move from the story of Jesus, his life and death and resurrection, to the world, and specifically in this case to our understanding of sexuality. We should not move the other way. Now, that might sound obscure, but what I mean is this. A lot of people, when they talk about sexuality, a lot of Christians, when they talk about sexuality, start with our experience here, what it feels like to me, how, I, how my lived experience is, and then move from there to Jesus and God and his purposes. So, for example, they might say, I find myself to be... In, in this particular way. I am sexually inclined in this way. And therefore, moving from there into the central story, God must want me to be that way. He must have created me that way. You see the way the reasoning goes? From experience to God's purposes in Christ. But it will not work that way. 
for a variety of reasons. The main one being, when we look at the Bible story, that central story, we must not skip over Genesis chapter 3, which tells us that our world and our experience of the world is out of joint. We cannot trust it to tell us what God is about. We have lost that ability to see clearly into the heart of God. And so we must look first to God's revelation in Christ and then work from there to understand our experience of the world. Because, in a sense, Jesus' story is the framework. It is the big picture. And everything else fits inside it. If we try to fit the frame inside the picture, we're just going to end up with, with a mess. Because that is not the way frames and pictures work. Uh, so I gather. So, deliberately and unashamedly, from here on, we are talking as if God has revealed himself in Christ. And as if that central story of God's love in Jesus is our starting point. The first thing that we say on every topic. Are you with me so far? Good affirmation. That's what I want. Also other things, but mainly that. Right. So, a biblical vision for sexuality. Where are we going with this? I wanted to deliberately start with gender or sex. Um, And I'm I'm sort of taking Genesis 2 as my anchor text here, although I might um, take us to other places as well. Now, even the language we use here is important. I put gender on the screen. um, I have also mentioned sex. Uh, The reason for that is that if you were to go into contemporary social science, one of the things you would find is that sex and gender mean different things. So, sex is usually used to refer to the biological characteristics that make us male or female. And gender is used to refer to an individual's self-understanding or a society's understanding of that person's sexual identity. So, um, it is generally considered that those things can be separated. We need to get that that is quite important to our contemporary culture's understanding of what it means to be male or female, and therefore to sexuality. In our contemporary culture's understanding, and I'm talking particularly about our sort of secular, postmodern Western friends and colleagues, obviously there will be others we meet who have views which are much more similar to our own in some ways. But in most of our contemporary culture, the idea is that gender and sex are separable, and therefore somebody can be biologically male but their gender, in terms of self-identity and societal identity, could be female. And actually there are cultures around the world where third genders are identified and recognised legally. And increasingly that is the case in a number of places. In Australia now you can get a passport which gives your gender as X. uh, Transgender. So, the the language matters. Um, The distinction, I think, between sex and gender can be helpful but we are not going to use it in exactly the way that the world uses it. And we'll come back to why in a minute. 
Genesis 1 and 2 is fascinating. Um, I'm actually going to zip into Genesis 1 quite a bit. Genesis 1, 27. God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Male and female, he created them. And actually, because of the way that little poem works, it seems that being male and female here is part of what it means to be in the image of God. He's created them in the image of God. Male and female, he created them. And that is quite striking. And in some ways, other aspects of the image of God which are contained in this chapter, like relationality, the ability to hold real relationships, or fruitfulness, the ability to go out and fill the earth and subdue it, are dependent on that basic duality of male and female. There's other stuff in here, though. We need to notice the creation of man. He is made, in Genesis 2, um, from dust. Verse 7. The Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Now, I might be pushing here, but I think it's pretty significant. The man, Adam, was a body before he had life. He was a body before he received the breath of God and became a living being. Bodies matter, and actually that sets us up for a a really important central point that will run through the scriptural storyline. Bodies matter. And if we go back to our central story, that shouldn't surprise us. Because when God wants to reveal himself to the world in Jesus, he takes a body. He makes one for himself in the womb of the virgin and becomes a man. So bodies matter. And bodies matter in, in, in lots of different ways. Now, we'll come back to bodies in a minute. Just for now, a body is not incidental to being a human being. Being a human being involves being a body, amongst other things. Bear that in mind. Now I want to say something here. Male and female in these creation stories reflect something of God in their relationship. I think it's legitimate for us In chapter 1 and verse 26, when God says, let us make mankind in our image and in our likeness, I think it is legitimate for us to say, although not popular with contemporary Bible commentators, but it is legitimate for us to say, we have here an echo of the doctrine of the Trinity as it would later emerge in Scripture and in the Church. God discusses with himself, because God, prior to creating man, is a relationship. And the fact that man is created male and female, human beings are created male and female, in some way reflects that relationship within God. Because male and female are essentially the same. They are human, both human, both in the image of God, both fully reflecting (coughs) who God is. But they stand in an ordered relationship. They're not completely interchangeable. Just as, in the Godhead, 
there is an ordered relationship between the Father and the Son. They are essentially both God, but they are in relationship with one another. Okay, let's go back to sex and gender. I promise I'm going to speed up in a minute. Uh, what you'll notice here, oh, I haven't clicked any things, oh, that's alright, I haven't put any notes, so I don't need to click any things. Um, what you notice here, when you, get, when you notice the body part of this, you think, if you're thinking in terms of sex and gender, you're surely going to think sex is in view in these chapters. This sort of biological reality of gender. But, but, as the chapters go on, roles are given. And as scripture goes on, roles are given that are tied to those sexes. Actually, we need to not make too much of this, because the roles, the exact expression of how those roles work, of what it means to be male and female, change and are expressed in different ways as we go through scripture. Which is what we would expect. This is a book written over thousands of years. So they change. And we mustn't move too quickly from any one biblical description of how men and women are meant to be and interact and say, that is how it should be in our culture. Otherwise, you wind up in ludicrous situations. I read a thing by a fairly famous pastor recently arguing quite strongly that um, biblically a woman ought not to serve in the police force because that would involve um, having authority over a man. Nah, just no. Just no. But, <laughs> a first blast against the monstrous regiment of women. Um, no, what... Obscure <laughs> historical references. That is not the way it works. We cannot go to the Bible as if it were a textbook of gender relations. But we can see in the Bible, male and female are really different things. Because, if you like, the calling of gender is tied to the gift of sex. I.e., when we are created, when, when the first man and woman were created, one was a man and one was a woman. They were given a sex. And then they were called to live that out as a gender. Maleness and femaleness. And we still are now. The exact ways in which that expresses itself will change with culture. And that is okay and we do not need to be afraid of that. But we cannot, biblically, allow male and female to collapse into a mush where they are just the same and there's no order or difference. In Genesis 3, gender roles are affected by the curse. When we read um, that the woman's desire will be for her husband and he will rule over her. When we read that the man will work the ground and there will be thorns and thistles. What we are seeing is the distinctive aspects of gender identity being cursed as a result of God's judgment on sin. Can I just say, the church has reacted very, very poorly to this historically. Parts of the church have maintained that because Genesis 3 says, for example, that a woman should suffer pain in childbirth, the use of anaesthetic in childbirth is against God's will. Genuinely, this was a big controversy in the church in the late 19th, early 20th century. 
Um, let's try not to talk nonsense in future. Um, where else do we say, here is the curse and the effect of sin, let's encourage and allow that to, foster, to be fostered? No. Similarly, the power relationship, the way that historically the relationship between, between men and women has been structured as a power relationship in which men have had power and women have been shut out from power, that is a Genesis 3 description of the way masculinity and femininity work. It is not something that we have to say, yeah, that's, that's good and that's right and part of the original design. Let's say no to it. Gender is experienced, I think, as problematic for many, many people. I think probably to some extent for most of us. Particularly as some of the sort of societal frameworks and pathways for what it means to be a man or a woman break down and we have to try to work it out for ourselves. The calling to be a man or a woman is hard. And we must acknowledge that there are cases where biological sex is difficult to determine. It is not obvious whether somebody is a man or a woman. That happens. We, we do not find ourselves in a position where that, that is unexpected to us. Sin and fallenness and brokenness are a reality in our world. And many aspects of life are a struggle that were never designed to be a struggle. And for many people, gender identity is hard. And that, again, is where we need to go back to our central story. Because our central story in Christ doesn't say, ever, that is hard, therefore you shouldn't do it. It says, that is hard, but God is able to redeem it and work through it. Because it is a story of redemption. A story of taking broken things and making them whole again. So that is what we look for when gender is hard. That was, that was point one. So, slightly more briefly. Uh, marriage. I'm in Ephesians 5. Or I'm not, but I will be very soon. (coughs) Let me read from 5.21. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the saviour. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the world, and to present her to himself as a radiant church, without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, after all. No one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body, just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. 
However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. More briefly on this one. The inauguration of marriage in Genesis 2 is picked up here by Paul and is referred to the relationship between Christ and the church. Actually, the way Paul structures it, it is very clear that he sees Christ and the church as being the thing that Genesis 2 is mostly about. Did you notice at the end, this is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church just after his quote from Genesis 2. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself and his wife, and the wife must respect her husband. It's almost as if that, oh, it, you know, oh and, and husbands and wives behave in, in appropriate ways. It's almost a tack-on to but what it's really about is that Christ loved the church. Christ loved the church, and that is what marriage is about. Now, when Paul says this, it's not a new idea. This has been running through the Old Testament. If you go particularly to the book of Hosea, but also through other prophetic works, and to a certain extent through the Pentateuch as well, there is envisaged the relationship between Israel and Yahweh their God as a marriage. And uh, in traditional Jewish and Christian exegesis, the Song of Songs has been read as being about that relationship. For some bad reasons, which I'll come back to in a minute. But for some good reasons as well. Marriage is mainly about the profound mystery of the Gospel. That is what Paul says. Now notice, he does not say, if you do marriage really well, it could be about the Gospel. He says, the institution of marriage... A man being joined to a woman in, in marriage and becoming one flesh is about the gospel. It is a reflection of what God in Christ is doing with the church. That's, that's intense. It's huge for those of us who are married. Because it says, the state you have entered into is about Jesus. It is not just about the two of you. It is about Jesus. It is intensely tied to that central story of God's redeeming love in Christ. As tightly as any two stories could be tied together, your story as a husband and wife is tied to the story of Jesus and the church. Huge. When we get that, we will understand why the marks of marriage throughout Scripture are exclusive, exclusivity and faithfulness. Marriage is exclusive because the relationship between Yahweh and Israel and between Christ and his church is an exclusive one. Israel is not free to introduce other deities into this relationship. When they do, they get slapped down. They cannot do it. That is not the way it works. God's faithful love will not tolerate rivals. Because love doesn't. And faithful, I say faithful rather than permanent. The, the, uh, the church has tended to talk about permanence with marriage. I don't think that's helpful because marriage is not permanent. It terminates at the death of one partner. And anyway, it's not about permanence. You know what? A marriage could be permanent, i.e. last until one partner dies, and yet not be faithful. It could even be 
permanent in the sense that it was sexually exclusive, nobody was playing away, and still not be faithful because one partner was not giving themselves wholly to the other in love. So, it is about exclusivity and faithfulness because that is the way the central story works. And marriage is a reflection of that story. We saw in Ephesians 5, there are gender roles involved in marriage, which again are not reversible according to the biblical pattern. Again, I want to put up that warning that these things are cultural expressions of those differences, and we should not move too quickly from Ephesians 5 to the present day. But neither should we say Ephesians 5 has nothing to say about the way we structure marriages today. A husband is still a husband and a wife is still a wife. Um, Can I say that in a lived marriage, it is not always going to work out like this, that the husband plays the role of Jesus and the wife plays the role of the church. Um, Because the thing about the church is that she sins, wanders away and is unfaithful. And the thing about Jesus is that he is always faithful. Um, Husbands in the room, I hope I don't need to tell you that you are not always the perfect spouse. Except you, Pat, obviously, brilliant. Um, No. No. Very often, very often, it will be the husband doing the church-like thing of wandering away into sin and the wife doing the Christ-like thing of forgiving and leading back into the faithfulness and exclusivity of that relationship. That is true. And that is true without upsetting the essential order of the husband and wife in their marriage. So to marry is to accept a particular sphere of service. It is to say, I as a husband will serve this woman faithfully while we both live. And I as a wife will serve this man faithfully while we both live. In the same way that Christ says, I will serve the church. And the church, freed in response, says, I will serve my Lord Jesus. Now, If you read any of the Bible, you'll notice that this model of marriage is honoured more in the breach than the observance, and that many of even the heroes of Scripture have appalling marriages by these standards. They're polygamous, they're unfaithful, they're adulterous, they're downright unpleasant. That is okay. Do not be alarmed by that. That just means that the central story is the central story. And the central story is one of God's love redeeming sinners who fail and mess it up over and over again. So even the heroes of scripture are broken and sinful. And their little stories, even though they are tied to the big story so closely, will not perfectly reflect it. And guess what? That's okay in one sense. Not okay because they have sinned, but okay because the central story is about a love that overcomes sin and forgives it and brings wholeness. And so our broken heroes are testimony to the central story of Jesus, just as a perfect marriage would be. Okay, marriage. Uh, Let's talk about sex. Yeah, I'm singing it, you're singing it. Okay. 
Let me read you a little bit of 1 Corinthians 7 from the beginning. Now, for the matters he wrote about, and here Paul is quoting what the Corinthians wrote to him, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. End quote. But, since sexual immorality is occurring, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife, and each woman with her own husband. The husband should fulfil his marital duty to his wife, and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. Do not deprive each other, except perhaps by mutual consent and for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again, so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I'm going to read a bit more of the context of that in a minute, although I'm running out of time. Notice, sex is for marriage, which does mean male-female. We're going to come back to that in a minute. Sex is good, contrary to the the suggestion that the Corinthians seem to have made that it would be better not to have sex. Paul's not interested in that, actually. They write to say, wouldn't it be better not just not to have sex? Paul writes back to say, you've got a husband, you've got a wife, have sex. More than that, more than that, he says, you must. You must. It's an order. Because, in marriage, you have entered into faithful service of one another. Your body is not yours to decide what to do with. Now, notice how reciprocal this is. Most ancient writers would have been happy with the wife does not have authority over her own body. They would not have been happy with neither does the husband have authority over his own body. But that is the way it is in scripture because it is about mutual loving service. Sex in this chapter and in the Bible as a whole is so far away from being about self-gratification that it is unbelievable and distressing that somehow our culture has got to the point where they think that sex as self-gratification is better and more beautiful than sex as self-giving love within a faithful relationship. But that is where we have got to. Sex also has a spiritual significance. I'm not going to read it, but if you look back into the end of chapter 6, Paul talks about what happens if you go and have sex with a prostitute. And he quotes that same bit from Genesis 2 that he uses in Ephesians 5 to refer to marriage. You become one flesh. One flesh is the epitome of the marriage bond symbolised in the physical union of sexual intercourse. And if you do that with a prostitute, Paul says, you become one flesh with her. A union happens there. A bond is set up there, which you probably do not want. And it is amazing the way he uses the argument. He uses, his, his argument is, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I take the members of Christ and join them to a prostitute? Don't you know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit? Don't you know that? So, see what he's doing there. For this argument to work, sexual intercourse, the act of physical love, is in some way parallel to the union between Christ and his people. It is a picture and a pointer to the union between Christ and his people. It is significant what the Corinthians do with their bodies sexually, because their bodies are joined to Christ. They belong to him. 
And we know that they are joined to Christ because they are inhabited by his Holy Spirit. The way Paul talks about sexual intercourse establishes it as a sign or perhaps a parable of the deep spiritual union between Christ and his church and therefore between Christ and the individual Christian. Now that fits with the classic Jewish and Christian reading of the Song of Songs. You go back and read the Song of Songs, it's intensely physical. And sometimes, when I was a younger guy, I thought, how in the world did anybody read this as being about Yahweh and Israel rather than as being about a man and a woman having sex? And the answer is, they did not have to make that choice because a man and a woman having sex within a marital relationship is about Christ and the church. I wonder if we're um, uncomfortable with that. If we are uncomfortable, I wonder why we're uncomfortable with it. Is it because we think that sex is dirty and something that ought not to be talked about in the same breath as Christ and the church? If so, we have a problem. And the world's condemnation of us for being sex-phobic is true, and we need to sort ourselves out. Or is it that we just don't know what that passionate level of communion with our Saviour would be like? In which case, we have a much, much bigger problem. I put that out there as a point for future repentance. Sexual intercourse, then, according to the Bible, is much more than our culture wants to make it. It is not a throwaway thing between two bodies which are incidental. It is not just a bit of fun. It is something with spiritual significance because it is, like marriage, tied to the central story of redemption. And therefore sex and marriage are interconnected because the love of Christ and Christ's covenant faithfulness to his people are interconnected. Right? Christ loves his people. The communion between Christ and his people exists in the context of his faithful commitment to them and not otherwise. And therefore, sex and marriage give a false portrait of the love of Christ if they are separated from each other. Does that make sense? You're still with me? Good, we're, we're, we're on the sort of home straight, he said, slightly lying. Uh, I want to talk about celibacy. Um, let me read you, we read it a minute ago. Here is a verse directed to married people. Do not deprive each other of sex, except perhaps by mutual consent and for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Now I think, although this verse is directed toward married pe- towards married people, it is important for our understanding of Paul's vision for sexual abstinence. Because he says, married people may stop having sex if it is agreed, and like really agreed, not just one person says it and the other person, if it is agreed, if it is for a limited time, and if it has the purpose of greater focus on the Lord for prayer. I think that helps us to see why Paul sees being unmarried as a good thing if you can do it. And if you read through the rest of 1 Corinthians 7, there is no doubt that that is the way he sees it. Uh, and indeed, 1 Corinthians yeah, no, 7, it's all 7. He thinks that the unmarried person will be able to focus on the things of the Lord in a way that a married person just can't do. 
I think that's true. I think that's true, and I think it's something that we don't say enough in church. For centuries, the church denigrated marriage in a completely unbiblical way and played up celibacy as the way to be holy. And as often happens, the pendulum has swung. And now we praise marriage and have nothing good to say about celibacy. And the reason that is wrong, the central reason that is wrong is Jesus. No sex. Celibate. For all his life. So you see, Paul underlines very carefully that marriage is good. And you must not denigrate it and you may enter into it freely and joyfully in obedience to the Lord. But if you can, he says, don't. Preserve yourself for service to the Lord. Now, this is a massive change from the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, it's all about marriage and children. The change, I think, occurs because the promised seed has come in Christ. We are no longer looking forward to him. Now, I want to say, if marriage provides a picture, a picture of the relationship and love between Christ and the church, a deliberately chosen life of celibacy has a much more direct witness to the all-sufficiency of Christ. Because it can say, I will withhold myself, withhold from myself, a lawful way of life so that I can pursue Christ more fully and wholeheartedly. That is a calling, and it is, in our culture, a hard one. I think in any culture, but particularly in our culture. Our culture tells you that it is is unhealthy, unhealthy not to have sex. Um, There's an episode of Friends, yes, cultural references from the mid-90s, finger on the pulse. (laughs) There's an episode of Friends in which Ross has not had sex for a while. And, uh, you know, this happens quite a lot in Friends. And, uh, and at one point he says, it's been six months. I'm afraid for my health. Okay, so you're meant to laugh at the line. But it only really works as a joke because that kind of is the assumption in our culture that regular sex is necessary for a healthy life. And we need to say, look, sex is more than just an appetite or a recreational activity but it is also less than you want to make it. It is not ultimate, and it can, it can be foregone, because Jesus is more. Sex, after all, only ever was a parable of the love that Christ has shown to his people. Parables are great, but the pursuit of the reality is greater. So I want to stand here and praise the celibate life. Not just that I happen to be single at the moment life, which is why I changed it from singleness, but the life which says, I am devoted to following Christ, and therefore can put this aside. Look, it is hard. If you are single and you are finding it hard, can I say faithful marriage is also hard? Do not fall for the grass greener on the other side of the fence trick. That is the devil's trick. It's hard either side of the fence. Once you get over there, the grass looks much the same as your grass. We can help each other, and we should do. And we as a church community, married people and single people, together 
can say, here is marriage tied to the central story of Christ's redeeming love because it pictures him, it images him and his church as husband and wife give each other, give themselves to each other in sacrificial service. And we can say, here are single people who are tied to the central story because they say, Jesus is everything. If we can get that right together, church, we can shake Satan's hold on this area of sexuality in our culture. The central story of reality is the love relationship between Christ and his church. And in the context of human sin, in the context of Genesis 3, that story is the story of redeeming sacrificial love. The Son of God who sought me and saved me, who came for me. He loved me and gave himself for me. That is the story. That is what reality is all about. And Christians are caught up in that story. We're one half of that story. We're the, we're the rubbish half. We're the unwilling half, the unfaithful half, the wandering half, the unworthy, damnable half, who are picked up by the almighty love of our Saviour Jesus Christ and who look forward to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And our relationships and our approach to sexuality, whether through marriage or singleness, can speak of that beautiful story. And in speaking of that beautiful story, they can become beautiful themselves, because that is where all the beauty is, in our Lord Jesus. And you know what? The thing about marriage in the New Testament and in the Bible as a whole, is it is not an introverted husband and wife enjoying themselves apart from the world thing. It is a fruitful thing. It is a thing that reaches out. And that is because that too is a model of Christ and his church. Because we are sent out as those who know the love of Jesus for us to woo the world on Christ's behalf. And we can do that in the way that we show forth our sexuality. Can I say, this is even, and perhaps especially true, in our failings and our sins. I'm not going to do a straw poll of who in the room has never sinned sexually in any way, in thought or deed, because it would be a waste of time. Even our sins can point to Jesus, because... When we point to that central story of Jesus' love for his church, there are not two stars in that story, Jesus and the church. No, just Jesus. He's the only one. And so our failings, insofar as we deal with them and bring them to him and ask for his forgiveness and experience his love covering them over, they too can point to that central story of God's redeeming love. Okay. I've been relatively positive. In the last three minutes, um, I'm not going to be offended. (laughs) I'm not going to be offended if you leave before I finish. But I am also going to keep talking. In the last three minutes, two minutes now, I want to talk about a couple of challenges that we face. Uh, And the first one is the whole idea of sexual liberation. I hope I've set out a positive vision of what we can mean when we talk about sexuality and how we can live it out. Sexual liberation has primarily meant in our culture 
the delinking of sex and marriage. That is what it has primarily been about. And there are lots of reasons for that. Some of the reasons why this came about historically are related to ways in which marriage was abused by church and society over centuries. So we cannot stand guiltless in the face of this. But still, that is what it is about. It also leads into other things. For example, the legitimization uh, of pornography and masturbation, because basically it says, I and my body belong to myself, and so long as I'm not hurting anybody, I can do what I want with it. See, it's all about autonomy. I am mine. The, the enormous contrast immediately with the biblical vision is huge, isn't it? I mean, it's obvious. I am not my own, but belong to my faithful Saviour, Jesus Christ, in body and soul. But the world says, no, I belong to myself, and I'll do what I want with myself. This point of view has almost totally triumphed in our culture. How do we approach it? Uh, Right, the first thing I want to say is um, Princess Bride-like. You keep saying liberation and freedom. You keep using that word. I do not think it means what you think it means. If the gospel story is true, and if reality is really shaped, in reality including humanity and each human being, by the love of Christ, then freedom just does not mean autonomy. Freedom, in the biblical story, is primarily an attribute of God. Primarily an attribute of God in his love. He is free to love. He is free to love us despite our sin. Free to give himself completely in faithful love. And because he freely does that, we are set free to freely love him and one another in return. But it is all about God's action. Freedom is all about God's action. If the Son sets you free, then you'll be free indeed, says the Gospel. Because if we are actually created in a particular way, and by that I do not mean our experience of how we are created, but God's revelation of how we are created in Christ. If we are created for that story, then we will not be free until we are living within that story. It is a dead end for us to try to make ridiculous arguments like, no, no, Christians have better sex. Yes, I have read those arguments. That is arguing from our experience, maybe, of the world to Jesus. And it will not work. We must work the other way. From Christ's love to our sexuality. And look, here's the thing we need to proclaim. Here's the thing that we need to be saying in answer to this challenge. We need to be saying the gospel. Gospel grace and not sexual ethics. Because when people are talking about liberation and freedom, what they are talking about is breaking out of rules that do not make sense to them. Breaking out of rules that have become disconnected from any sort of basis. Because that is what happened historically. Right? Christian sexual ethics lived on for a long time after understanding of the Christian gospel had died in our culture and just became brittle and useless rules that nobody understood what they were there for and so they were cast off and in that situation and that context well might they be cast off because they were dead things we need not to be saying to people again you must be married before you have sex but to be saying to people again 
The Lord Jesus loves the world. And because his love is the model for love, we must shape our love around his faithful, sacrificial love. We need to tell the story. In fact, I would suggest that we don't really even need to get on to talking about sexuality until quite a lot later in the conversation, unless, obviously, somebody else brings it up. We need to talk about Jesus, because he really, really is what sexuality is all about, just as he really, really is what everything is all about. It's about him. I could talk about that for for longer, but I won't. Challenge two. Um, I I want to um, point you to Romans 1. I'm not going to read it. This is a ridiculous thing to try to tack on to the end of a talk like this after I've already been talking for 56 minutes and 47 seconds. So, let me be brief. Romans 1 describes two exchanges. It says, sinful people have exchanged the glory of God for a lie and they have exchanged natural relations with women for relations with other men. And it also later on says the same thing about women and other women. It is important. It is important that we link those two things. The church historically has been against homosexuality. Let me say a few things about, about that. About that. Well, let me say a few things about scripture first. Look, the scripture doesn't talk very much about homosexuality at all. The Bible is not sex-obsessed, no matter how much some of its adherents and critics might be. It just isn't. However, whenever it does talk about homosexuality, the verdict is negative, deeply negative. As it is in Romans 1, so it is throughout. And any attempt to reinterpret those biblical passages to make them mean something else, to my mind, has been unconvincing. Um, What I would recommend you read, if you really want to read something on this, um, is uh, the chapter on homosexuality in the Moral Vision of the New Testament by Richard Hayes. It's very, very good. I can lend it to you when I finish painting my bedroom and I can find all my books again. Um, It will not do to try to interpret it away. Also, we need to think about the bigger story. About the bigger story. See, the reason Paul links turning away from God to idols to turning away from relations with the opposite sex to relations with the same sex is because in some way he sees a parallel there. He uses exactly the same language to describe them both. He sees a parallel there. This is part of our turning away from the big story where we are open to Christ and one another towards our little private stories where we are self-enclosed. That is unpopular. And, you know, most people will think that is a horrible, horrible thing to say. I'm convinced it's what the Bible says. And the answer never is to discard the scriptures and their witness to Christ. The answer always is to say, what does the big story have to say to this? Now we know, we know, that there are a significant number of people for whom this is a deeply personal issue, both within and without the church. Most recent studies indicate that sexual attraction is a sliding scale. Some people are almost exclusively homosexual in their attractions, some almost exclusively heterosexual, and there's a range in between. We know that. 
Okay, what does the central story have to say to that? It does not say, well, wherever you find yourself must be where God wants you to be. It just doesn't say that. Genesis 3 gets in the way of that. Our understanding of ourselves is broken. Nor does it say, as um, a a Roman Catholic priest uh, has been saying in the last couple of days, that it would be inhuman to deny people a life of sexual love. Because Christ is everything. A life without sexual love can be a fulfilled life if it is a life lived in and for the Lord Jesus Christ. Incidentally, he's a priest. It doesn't matter whether he was gay or not. He's still not going to... Anyway, it's by the by. We need to approach our culture not saying homosexuality is wrong, but saying there is a better and more beautiful vision for sexuality which is caught up in the union of Christ with his people, in his self-giving, sacrificial love, which led to death on the cross. We need to say that. We need to believe it. We need to believe that for people who experience solely homosexual attraction, the gospel is still good news. It is still good news if I say to somebody, the love of Jesus is everything, Therefore, put aside your need for sexual love. Still good news. Now, putting aside your need for sexual love, and I do not want you to mishear me here, is an enormous ask for anyone. An enormous ask. This is massively close to the heart of our personal identity. The way we feel sexually is hugely close to our understanding of who we are, and our vision of who we are. And so we can only say Jesus is better and it is worth giving up on that for if he really really is amazing if his love is awesome and I hope we believe it and I hope we feel it I hope that is part of our life together as a church and part of our individual lives together as we relate to the Lord Um, I would talk more on that but I will not because hey it's late here's a a quote from one of my other favourite theologians the love of God for us is unconditional strong and victorious it is a burning love which cannot be quenched it is wholly trustworthy It is a rock to which we can cling without fear of its crumbling. It is a refuge to which we can flee without doubting whether it will stand. It is nourishment which is always prepared for those who hunger and thirst for love and never withheld from them. We have only to see that we are not worthy of it, that we have forfeited it, that we cannot secure it of and for ourselves, that we can only receive and accept it. The love of God for us in Christ is overwhelming. And one of the things that it overwhelms is our broken and frankly minute views of sexuality. 
And it says to us, Jesus is better. Seek him. Other things will follow. Maybe not in this life, maybe in the one to come. But it is worth it for him. Friends, I've talked for an hour and four minutes and 16 seconds. And I will now pray and dismiss you to your homes. Or you may come and harangue me with questions and objections to things that I have said. Let's pray. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for your great love for us in the Lord Jesus. Thank you that in your grace you call us to live lives of response to his love. Lives that show the world his beauty. Help us to do it. It is an awesome calling. And help us, Father, as we continue to wrestle with these questions. As we seek to understand your heart and your mind revealed in Jesus. As you have faithfully loved us, help us to faithfully love you and one another and the world for the sake of the glory of Jesus and because we pray in his name. Amen.